Well, the biggest weekend in a box office hit ever is still the Avengers Endgame. The movie grossed $350 million in one night. One night, April 26, 2019. It went on over the next five days to earn, in five days, $1 billion. One followed by nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine zeros in five days. So why is this movie so popular? Well, one reason is that you know that 60% of people between the ages of 18 to 54 consider themselves fans of superhero movies. So in the context of this, then if that was the first place grossing movie, the second place grossing movie was just one year before in April of 2018, the movie uh, The Avengers The Infinity Wars was the movie the year previously. $260 million that weekend, the opening weekend in 2018. $1 billion in five days. Good morning. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. It's a good day to be together. It's a, it's a good day to open God's Word together. It's a good day to be in church together. It's good to kind of be feeling like we're getting back to normal. I know I used this joke last week. I know we're back to normal because all the seats in the front are empty. And so uh, it's just good. It's good to be back here with you, but it is a bittersweet day as well as we say goodbye to our dear friends, Pastor Mario and Denise. He's moving to Kentucky to pursue his seminary degree in God's call in ministry. Uh, some of you know that, that Pastor Mario is a huge fan of the Avengers. Uh, just make the mistake of asking him, like I did, which one of the movies I should watch first, or which one in order, or how I should go about, or which movie is the best. And what ended up happening is he whisked Pastor Brian and I away into a classroom and got a whiteboard out and took us through all of what we needed to know about the Avengers. He let us know all the X's and O's. He let us know uh, the subplots, the storylines that we needed to know before we could even begin watching this movie series. At the time, most Brian and I had not seen any of the movies, and I am happy to report to you, I suppose, that Brian used his COVID year, quote-unquote, wisely, and he watched all 25 of the movies uh, last year. <laughs> I am still at one movie in. So, here's Pastor Mario now, your Avengers superhero himself. So, so to be totally transparent, I have not seen this movie that I am kind of basing my argument on this morning, but I've read that it's a real cliffhanger. It's a pretty important movie in the whole kind of thing. It's where all things are kind of coming together when we find out the fate of the planet is never more uncertain than it is in this movie, The End Game. Uh, but like uh, really what happens is over uh, 10 years and 25 movies, all these things all kind of come together. What Even in the titling of this movie, End Game, what would this all mean. Well, those of you who are not Avengers fans, there's something for you here this morning as well, because the word endgame didn't originate from that movie series. It actually comes from uh, the games of chess or backgammon, where endgame has long been used by players to be able to talk about what happens when there's only a few pieces left on the board. It's simply the final stage of your strategy, the final plan, the final steps before the game is over. So Endgame is the desired consequence of a planned series of events. And so all these Avenger fans that were out there, they all knew that something spectacular was, they was all going to kind of come together to be this culmination, this Endgame movie. They all came out to wait to see what it was. And Hollywood knows 
and all the Avengers have picked up on this, uh, this important theme, is that there's always going to be an end. There's actually something we can see in that in Scripture, too, that there's an end to God's story. From the beginning of time, for God's plan for human history, there is going to be an end game for all of us. And that's why my sermon is titled that today, The End Game from Revelation chapter 8. So if you got your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, I'll be in the New International Version this morning. Would you find your way to Revelation chapter 8? Turn there, if you will, this morning. Revelation chapter 8. We are in the 8th week of a sermon series on the book of Revelation, working our way through. It's this, this work of literature by the Apostle John, shining light on all these different secrets, or the mystery of God that has been hidden for all ages in plain sight for us to see, but at the same time, we're not always connecting all the dots. But unlike the Avengers Endgame movie, which tells the, the story, the fictional story of closing a fictional cast of superheroes, God's, God's Endgame is the factual story, conclusion story of all of human history. So today we'll certainly not come to the conclusion of the book of Revelation. But we are seeing here, we're seeing the facet of what happens when there are only a few players left on the board. Today we're going to see some snapshots and of what we sing songs about often. But actually, if we're honest, we kind of blindly sing these songs, probably uh, with not enough reflection on what it is that we're singing about, what our words are actually talking about. The, the words like, our God is a consuming fire. We do not actually consider him very often in that vein. But let's read together here from chapter 8, Revelation chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayer of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had those seven trumpets prepared to sound. Have you ever considered God's endgame? Have you ever laid on your back in an open field at night, looking up at the stars, looking and imagining the scope of the brokenness of human race and thinking through the detail of what God must have been up to, of all that is put together in the foundation of the world? Have you put your mind through the, the, the process of trying to think through portions of daydreaming even on how there was all of these things included in the promises of God, the way that he promised Abraham and Sarah that from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and circling the globe would all be part of God's master plan. Have you ever considered the meticulous planning that it takes for the Trinity and how he acts in the fullness of time? with greater precision than even NASA, who, who last year when it launched a spacecraft into the sky, last year, July 2020, and it lands a, a Land Rover on Mars. Do you know when it landed there? It was in February of 2021. Do you understand the precision and the planning and the timing of all that had to come together to do that? Do you have any idea? Have you ever thought about how much more trouble 
how much more detail that God has gone into in order so that you and I would be redeemed and rescued as we look through the history of time. Today as we're looking at our passage, we're looking at this, we've got to acknowledge that we are in a, a, a change phase here this morning. In the book of Revelation, we're going to see it. There's a section closing here where the seven seals of the scroll have been opening. And then practically speaking, we're also acknowledging there's a phase change happening here at this church, at this location, at 6301 Main Street, Williamsville, New York. As we just pointed out, Pastor Mario and Denise, they're going to be moving away. And so there's a, there's a change that is happening here. Myself, my family, we're going to be taking some time and taking a sabbatical as a family. So there's, there's some things that are going to change here. Pastor Brian is going to be preaching for the next number of weeks. Uh, actually, he's going to be working his way through the rest of uh, this book of Revelation. But as he is going through, there, there's, there's a change that is happening here. And while he's a familiar face, there's going to be a little bit of a different rhythm and a different uh, uh, rhyme to it as it comes. So it's helpful to me and it's helpful to us to just take a moment to kind of look back where we come, come from in regards of this book of Revelation. It's been a, a learning and growing process for all of us, I hope. It's a process where we're learning and growing as we're working our way through a difficult passage. We're working our way through difficult passages, controversial passages, one step at a time, learning and growing as we go. Now, in my preparation for today's sermon, I listened to an old message. It's a message from 15 years ago by an African-American pastor. His name is, uh, uh, his name is uh, Arthur Jackson, and he's from Chicago. And uh, he, as he's preaching through, he's talking about this very passage, and as he's working his way through, uh, he, he wants us to help us to remember some of the things. As we move too quickly, we're going to miss some stuff. And so what he hoped for his church, and what I hope for you this morning is that there are a few things as we've been going through a few things that will stick to your ribs is the way that he put it a meal that sticks to your ribs and pastor jackson told this wonderful story about being with dear friends and sharing some sweet potato pie uh together and the way that that just one of his friends said oh that meal that that's that's a meal that'll stick to your ribs and so what I want to say this morning is that there's a meal that is satisfying and filling for a long time afterwards here in Revelation. There's a few things in Revelation that I hope as we have been moving through and moving what seems even too quickly still to be moving through, that there are a few things that are sticking to your ribs. First, that Revelation is a book with, that has three different types of literature all kind of interwoven into one. It's like a three-braided uh, strand, and it's all kind of braided together. First of all, it's a book of prophecy. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 we read, blessed is one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So it is a prophecy for us to digest. It's an epistle. Revelation 1 4 tells us that. It says, John to the seven churches that are in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from he who is and was and who is to come. So it's an epistle. He's writing to churches. He's writing a letter to churches who'd receive the letter and do something with it when they received it. But it's also an apocalyptic literature dealing with end times. It's a, a book of signs and a book of symbols. In that same chapter, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, I turned around, this is John speaking, to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among those was someone who was like the Son of Man, but he was dressed in a robe, reaching down with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was like wool. It was white as snow. His eyes, they were blazing like fire. So this is apocalyptic literature, and it's all about signs and symbols. 
So the first thing to remember is that we have these three different types of literature all interwoven together, and we have to try to read it as that. The different portions of Scripture that we're looking at, we have to realize what it is that it's trying to do. Secondly, we've got to remember that this book is a blessing. This book is a blessing. It's promised blessing to those who would hear and read and heed, if you have the King James Version. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who would hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And thirdly, or maybe most importantly, we've got to come back to this and be reminded of this again and again and again. The main character of the book of Revelation is the main character of the Bible. It is all about Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants what would soon take place. He made all this known by sending his angel to his servant John, and I'm testifying everything that I have seen. That is the word of God and the testimony of who? Jesus Christ. Our Savior died for the church. As we, as we began the book of Revelation, we saw that. We saw that Jesus is moving amongst the lampstands, the lampstands representing the church itself. And so as he's moving through, he is a light. He is a light entity that is moving through these churches, a light that all the world is supposed to see. And so he challenges, he corrects the church. He's, he's encouraging and impressing them to have purity, have courage in the world, that they should be demonstrating this light for the glory of God. He is calling the church to repentance, to turn away from the things that are, that are keeping them from pursuing hard after God. They, they are to shine the light of Christ for all to see. I am the light of the world, is what Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 8. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's the purpose of the church and as he is writing this epistle writing these letters to the church he says don't forget your role don't forget your job and we cannot forget our role our job either is to shine the light of Christ and then in chapters 4 and 5 we get to see this this divine command center of heaven the divine command center of the universe cannot be found in the power centers of this world. In just about a week, all the nations of the world, we're all coming together for the Olympics in Tokyo, Japan. I'm sorry, guys, that you are not going to be able to be there. That was the plan. They were supposed to go there. They weren't supposed to go to Kentucky. They are supposed to go to Tokyo. But they're not there. But all the nations are coming together. But the, the power center is not there at the Olympic Games. The power center of the universe is not found in Washington, D.C. The power center of the universe is not found in London, England, or Toronto, Canada, or Beijing. It's not found in Paris, or in Moscow, or in Mexico City, or Dubai, or Rome, or even in Jerusalem. No, these capital cities of the world who think that they have influence, that's not where the true power lies. The one who occupies the throne in heaven, he rules over all the world. And we see that here. Is this sticking to your ribs? Is this a meal that satisfies your soul? God is sitting on the throne. And when we see God, when we see him pictured here, he's indescribably majestic, beautiful, lovely, awesome. And none of us are worthy to be standing in his presence. And that's why there's this great gulf between God and man, a gulf that can only be crossed through the, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when they look through all of heaven and all of this, they say, who is it that is worthy to take the scroll? 
There's no one to be found until they realize that the lion of the tribe of Judah is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. So every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? So John is hearing and he is seeing things that are not evident to the physical eye. He is seeing into another dimension or seeing up into the sky. We're not sure. He is seeing something that none of us had ever seen before. He's peeling back this thin veneer of appearances and speaking about a depth of dimension that, that, that we would we'd never give sustained attention to. He's daring to speak of almost unspeakable things. He is trying to explain the things that are unexplainable, understand the things that are un-understandable. And he's trying to plainly state that he, he doesn't understand it. When he's asked multiple times, I, I don't know what is going on. I'm just going to tell you what I'm seeing right now because it's baffling my mind and I don't even have the words to put together to try to explain it. And John describes the first of the four seals of how these horses come. There are two groups of people and how these, these horsemen have come. These horsemen have come and they have pushed their way through. Their hooves are pounding away at the foundations of the earth, pounding away through deception, pounding away through disruption, pounding away through famine, and pounding away through death. And we kind of see this balance of how there are these four events that were outward and physical and easy to see, and then there are these three events that follow that are kind of behind the scenes with the angelic beings. What is going on there behind the scenes, both for good and and for evil, and we're going to see that cycle itself back through again. Then you see this fifth and sixth seal, and you see these two groups of people. First, the martyred saints, those who've been faithful to God through tremendous persecution, and then a second group who've ignored the existence of God altogether. It's reminiscent of the Old Testament when we see Pharaoh there in Egypt and Moses comes in and he says, let my people go. And he says, why? He says, because God says so. And he says, who is the Lord that I would obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Why would I do something like that? And the author of Exodus says he had hardened his heart against God. And that's the same thing that we see here in Revelation. They've hardened their hearts against God, even while the earth is crumbling around them. And the question is asked, well, then who can possibly stand under the wrath of the Lamb? And then there is this pause, this moment of calm before the storm. There's this pause. It's as if the wave that is coming has just reached its peak height, like a tsunami that's about to strike the, the, the shore, the seventh seal that's about to come in and wipe everything out, crush the shoreline, and destroy everything in its path. There is this pause as the wave is just hanging in midair. Because in God's endgame, this is where the holy and consuming, purifying and cleansing fire of God is about to fall on the earth. And there's this pause. And God assembles and calls together this, this family meeting in many ways. Symbolically, God tells his angels, he says, hold everything, the four corners, the four winds of the earth, hold everything, hold it all back. And he calls for this family meeting. And John hears one of God's angels giving the roll call for this meeting. And he hears these names listed. There are 12 tribes of Israel listed, 144,000 names in all. But when he turns around, he realizes that no, it wasn't just those 144,000 because he doesn't see 12,000. He doesn't see 144,000. He doesn't see 444,000. 
144,444. No, he turns around and he sees the great multitude he said that no one could possibly ever number. Because when John turns around, he realizes that the family of God and the expanse of who God had given himself for as a sacrifice was far larger than John could ever imagine. A great multitude as far as the eye can see and that no one can count from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people, every language standing there before the throne and before the Lamb. And so we see this beautiful family gathering in heaven. And like every good family gathering, it's celebration. It really is. It's like a wedding where all the distant relatives and cousins have come from all over the place, from the, the far reaches of the United States, or maybe even further, where, where you get them all together, and the little boys and the, and the little girls are running around with circles with, with their sisters and their brothers and their cousins and their second cousins and their aunts and uncles who are younger than them, but they're all running around together, and they're all just playing and making lots and lots of noise, and where the aunts and the uncles are standing proudly off to the side, uh, looking and just looking at all of these kids. And, and all of what has happened here and all they're all kind of coming together and they're talking and they're pleased and proud of their little ones and the grandmothers and the grandfathers they sit in their rocking chairs just kind of overwhelmed by it all but also drinking in deeply the beauty of the moment of the whole family coming together in this way and the joy that fills their hearts for this special event and then you have photographers running around trying to screw around, ca capture these pictures of, of different people in various combinations. You want to see all the grandkids together. You want to see all the girls together, all the boys together. And you want to see uh, candid photos because if you set everything up, it looks static and it looks wooden. So they want to be able to get things to kind of capture the moment so that the, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren can look at these pictures of their oldest remembered relatives on their wedding day. And then there's this great picture. It's a time for the big group picture. They call everybody in. And we can imagine that as we're looking here in Revelation chapter 7. This is the big picture that's being taken. And the lens is, is wider and more expansive than you could ever imagine and demanding the widest angle. It's a familiar picture though. It's a familiar picture, one populated with faces that you and I recognize. People who are known to us or people that we've heard about or seen their picture on a wall somewhere else, but they are all in the picture, and you and I are in the picture as well, as well as other names and faces that we have no idea who they are. And who's at the center of this wedding photo? Who's at the center? Who are the bride and groom? Well, the groom is Christ, and the bride is his church. And those who gather beside them for this photo are the saints from every age, every land, every time, every language. And the photo hasn't really been taken yet because there are still people being added to the picture as we speak. But it's a vast, vast multitude with Christ and his bride there at the center. And beside Jesus stands John the Baptist. He's his best man. He's dressed up in his best camel hair suit. He looks sharp. And among the groomsmen are James and John, the ones that he had nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. They're primed lively. They're going to have a good time at the reception. Mary's standing by too, not the young girl from those baby pictures of Jesus, but no, she's now standing by there, the beautiful and stately mother of the groom. And then nearby is Mary Magdalene. She's flitting about, running about, still ready 
to stand, not ready to stand still, but wanting to dance the night away. The wide-angle lens that is trying to capture this scene, the wedding of Christ and the church, is a real picture populated by real people. They wear white robes, it tells us here, purified by the blood sacrifice of the Lamb. The faces of these saints bear witness to their history, to their story, and how their hopes have been built on this. It's visible. And at this family gathering, there are some who have endured tremendous amount of struggles over their time. But now their faces are beautiful. They're, they're authentic, alive, and radiant with expectation for now Jesus, their Savior, their Rescuer. He stands there at the center. Now, Lord Jesus, the Lamb who is slain, he's going to open the last, the seventh seal. The seventh seal is going to be opened when he opens that seventh seal. All commotion stops. And there's silence in heaven. The silence is powerful. The silence is is ominous. It's tremendous. It's powerful verse 1 says when he opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour now up to this point John has been describing so much He's been, there's been worship you see these four living creatures surrounding the throne and he tells us that they never cease to say the words holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come they never cease they never stop they continue to worship day and night and this family gathering of every tribe, every nation, every tongue has been called. And everyone is here. Everyone is together. And now, silence. When the seventh seal is broken, there is silence. Awesome and complete and total silence. No one makes a sound. Why not? Because it's too sobering. What's about to happen is too awesome, too impactful, that no one can even say a word to what is about to go down. No sound is made at all. And as we are looking in here, Revelation chapter 8, our first takeaway is this, that the silence, the silence should sober us. The silence should sober us. I was reading this week on the 77th anniversary of D-Day, which was a few weeks ago, the last month on, the, on June 6th. And there was men that were writing and reading. I was reading about how there were men that were still living from that era. When they go back and they remember what it was like to be on those boats as they were headed towards the shore. Or what it was like to jump out of a plane into pitch black darkness, to land at night in a country they didn't know, to a fate they didn't understand. What was the one thing that they all recalled? It was silence. The way that they sat in the boats and looked at each other in silence. The way that they stared at each other in the plane just before they jumped in silence, knowing the weight of what was about to unfold in front of them. The silence should sober us. 
And there's some biblical examples of something similar. When Israel entered into the promised land, the first encounter they have with the enemy was in Jericho. And at the, at the Lord's instruction, what did they do? We talked about this in VBS this year. We're reminded of it. What did they do? They go around the city six times, and each day, one time each day for six days. But the parallel here is that they didn't say a word. They were told, they were given this instruction, you march around the city, you do not say a word, there's to be complete silence. For six days, they marched around the city in complete silence. And on the seventh day, guess what? There were seven priests who took seven trumpets that they sounded there. What do we see here? Look at this, Revelation 8, 1 and 2. When he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. As we know about the story of Jericho, the city fell. But what an interesting parallel here, because what's about to unfold is after this silence, and after these seven trumpets are blown, and those two, as, as they have stood against God, those who have rebelled against God, when the trumpets blow, the world is about to fall flat. They're going to have an encounter with God himself, and the wrath of God is going to be poured out on this. But here we have this silence. Silence is such a powerful thing. The silence should sober us. Secondly, the prayers should encourage us. The prayers should encourage us. Look at this, continuing on, as I just read a few minutes ago, verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. You see, our prayers are God's Authority. The first century Christians who are reading this letter, the churches are reading this letter, they're in tremendous persecution. They need to know that their prayers are a priority to God. All of heaven stops here and understands the significance of our prayers. The incense is added to the prayers of the believers. Prayers are so important. In the Christmas narrative, we remember the story of Zechariah, the old priest, the one who's married to Elizabeth. He's going into the temple to do what? To burn incense there at the altar and offer prayers for the people. He's going to offer up prayers. He's going to burn incense before God. And as he is burning the incense, as he is praying for God's people, and as the assembled worshipers there outside of the space are there praying and worshiping as well, what happens is he goes in to his shock and to his utter fear. There standing next to what? To the altar is an angel. Perhaps he was there all along. And like John, Zacharias saw something that he could not see previously. Zechariah was given the eyes to see him as he is gathering up the prayers of God's people. What does the angel tell Zechariah? He says, you and Elizabeth, you're going to have a baby. But what does he say even more than that? He says, your prayer has been heard. The angel is gathering together those prayers. The incense is being shared. Your prayer has been heard. And so what is the reoccurring prayer that has been, been prayed for generations? 
you actually know there is, there's one kind of primary prayer that's all the way through Scripture. Do you know it? It runs through Psalms. David talks about it constantly. Psalm 103 puts it in clear words. It says this. It says, How long, O Lord, how long will you hide your face forever? And they continue to pray that prayer. Generations after generation has prayed that prayer. You can imagine that during the day, the people who are reading this text for the very first time, they are certainly praying this prayer. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face forever? And today we ask the same prayer. Lord, how long? Look what's happening in the world around us. How long, Lord? How long? When the disciples asked Jesus, they said, teach us how to pray. What does he teach them? Do you remember? It's a familiar verse. We say it all the time. But isn't it very reminiscent of this very scene? It says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So it further asks the same question. Look what's happening in this world. Lord, how long? How long? Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, your will be done. Lord, bring your kingdom here now. It's important to recognize that God places great value on prayers. In James 5, we read that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And then it goes on and he tells the story of Elijah and he uses him as an example. He says, look, look, now listen here. Elijah was just a man like you and I. He was just a man like us. And do you know what God did through his prayers? That leads me to my final point this morning. We look at Revelation 8. And the seventh seal is being broken here. Yes, the silence should sober us. The prayers should encourage us. But lastly, the message should motivate us. The message should motivate us. Because do you know what God did through Elijah's prayers? There's a scene in 1 Kings chapter 18 where there's this showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah, the prophet of God, and 400 uh, prophets of the fake idol or the fake god of Baal. And there's this spiritual competition that happens there on Mount Carmel. So whoever can pray to their God and have their, have their sacrifice on the altar spontaneously burst into flames wins the competition. Elijah challenges anyone who is standing around, anyone who is listening, anyone who listened to the sound of his voice, says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. If God is God, follow him. If God is God, follow him. If God is God, follow him. And then Elijah prays, Lord, make yourself known to these people. Make yourself evident. Let them know that you are God. And what happens is he, he prays. And his, his prayer goes up. And the fire of God comes down. The prayers go up and the fire of God comes pouring down. His prayers go up and the fire falls down from heaven. The fire falls down. 1 Kings 18.38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell. It burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil. It licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, what did they do? They fell prostrate and they cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Take a look what happens in Revelation 8. The prayers of the saints 
all the saints from all of time are gathered together by this angel. They are gathered up and the prayers go up there. And then, verse 5, the angel took the censer. He filled it with the fire from the altar and he hurled it to the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The prayers go up and the fire from heaven comes and falls down. To what result will this be? To what result are these seven seals bringing? To what result the seven trumpets, if you've read ahead, there are seven trumpets that will follow. What, what happens after that? To what result after that there are seven bowls of wrath that will be poured out? To, to what result that all will bow down and say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, He is God. See, this message should motivate us. The message that's being spoken here should motivate us. As the band comes forward this morning, here's the point. Here's the takeaway. The message should motivate us. You know, we don't have to live a life of fear and trembling. Afraid that at any moment's notice whether it's God, whether it's Jesus Christ crucified, or whether it's one of his angels that goes over and takes that golden censer from the fire and starts firing, zapping us from heaven. We don't have to be afraid of that. No, that's not what's happening here. Because in Elijah's story, what happens at Mount Carmel, this epic battle at Mount Carmel, the fire from heaven falls down where? On the altar. The fire from heaven does not fall down and wipe out all the people. No, the fire from heaven falls down at the altar on the sacrifice. The sacrifice there at the altar. And that's why this message should motivate us. The message of the gospel is this, that God, the creator, the sustainer of all the universe, he gave his son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect and spotless sacrifice for the sins of the world. The wrath of God fell on him, the sacrifice, there on the cross of Calvary, so that you and I could be rescued as a result from our sin. So that you and I could be welcomed in to the family gathering, the family picture, the photo with Jesus and his bride. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But the question that Elijah asked the people who were listening there at Mount Carmel still applies. He asked them, he says, if Baal is your God, then follow him. But if God is your God, choose him. Choose this day who you will serve. Who will you serve? In many ways, when we leave this room this morning, we're going to have our own family gathering. We're going to celebrate the ministry Pastor Mario and Denise and the wonderful time that we've had together for the last five years. But today, after that, when things have died down, the activity has died down, at some point this afternoon or maybe tomorrow, you will experience a moment of silence. And it's my prayer this morning that you will be reminded of what I'm asking you here right now. You will ask yourself this question, who is it that I will serve today? If it is God. And if God is God, will I follow Him? Pastor Mario painted a verse on the wall when he arrived five years ago. This weekend is his five years.
upstairs.